Awesome. Good morning, church family. How are we doing? Excellent. Uh, we are officially in our second week of Advent, uh, which means fellow procrastinators, you still have at least a week before you need to freak out about getting all the gifts. Uh, I usually wait till third week of Advent, and then, then I start freaking out. Uh, but man, for, for children, like when we were kids, you don't think of any of that stuff. This season is, is mostly just impatiently waiting, right? Uh, we focus on that a lot uh, with Advent as well. We look at stories about waiting and anticipating the long-expected coming of Jesus. We sing songs like, uh, Come Now Long, Expected Jesus. Stories about waiting. But one Advent story struck me as I was thinking about what to preach on this week. Uh, because in all the stories about waiting for Jesus, there was one story that seemed all about seeking Jesus in the waiting. And then I thought, you know, for the things that we're really looking forward to, we don't just passively wait, do we? We actively wait. I mean, even kids at Christmas, they, they actively wait by writing lists, grabbing that Smith's catalog and circling everything, demanding that you decorate the house and bake obscene amounts of cookies. Like the, the anticipation and excitement pours over into action. It's like the more that you treasure something that you're waiting for, the more you actively prepare for it as you wait. And that's what I want us to think about this morning as we look at the story of the wise men. God's people, and apparently these wise men, have long anticipated and waited, waited for the promised king to come. But it's from the wise men that we see more than just waiting. We see an active seeking out of the promised king. This is a story about God drawing in a people to come worship the long-awaited King Jesus for the first time. And through it, I think God is describing the kind of worshipers that he's drawing in and what seeking to worship him looks like. What does seeking to worship the king in the waiting look like? Well, I'm going to try to draw out seven things. I know it's a lot, but seven things we can learn from the wise men's worship. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we just ask for your help. Father, we need your spirit to illuminate your word. God, to help me to, to preach your word with boldness and to help all of us to have ears that hear and hearts that respond. So we ask God, please speak to us. Please move in our hearts and help us to respond. We pray in your name. Amen. All right, let's look together at our first verse. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, convenient for us, all three of the main characters of our story are right here in verse 1. So, let's talk about them. First up, Jesus. When he mentions Jesus, we see that this is taking place after Jesus was born. 
And at this point, Jesus could be anywhere from two months old to two years old. So if you're like me and you've got uh, manger scenes seared into your brain from childhood of three wise men at the stables the night of the birth of Jesus, you're going to need to kind of mental floss that out because this happens a bit later. But in Matthew's gospel, we go from the angelic pronouncing of uh, that Mary's going to miraculously give birth to Jesus to this story. And one thing we need to know to help help us understand the story fully is that Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And what he's most concerned about is helping them connect the Hebrew scriptures to Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew is full of Jewish subtext, things that, that we might kind of skip over, but would have been clear and powerful anecdotes for the Jewish audience. Matthew chose to tell this particular story to help his readers connect the dots. And one of the dots he's connecting is that Jesus is the promised king. All those prophecies about the coming ruler of all the earth, like we see quoted from the prophet Micah in our text, Jesus is king. The promise is fulfilled. And we see even We see this even in how uh, he mentions the second character, Herod the king. Matthew drives home the point of kingship in this story. When he introduces Herod, it's Herod the king in verse 1. Again, Herod the king in verse 3. And as just the king in verse 9. His audience would have known the kind of king Herod was. Appointed by Rome, he wasn't really a king of the Jewish people. Herod was, in worldly terms, a very accomplished king. He's the kind of king that got stuff done. Considered a master builder, he was credited with restoring the temple in Jerusalem, as well as building many pagan temples, building many theaters, cities, great palaces, and honestly, an absurd amount of fortresses for himself. He was a paranoid sociopath. He cared primarily about his own fame, and in order to keep the throne, he killed his own wife, at least two of his sons, several extended family members, and eventually the murder of a whole village of baby boys. And Matthew says, in the days when this guy was king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? See the contrast? The mention of the wise men, again, would have conjured up references. In Greek, they're called magi, and they're a bit of a mysterious group. But this surely would have made his readers think of Daniel, where the magi were the Babylonian class of priests, sorcerers, magicians, astronomers, dream interpreters that were opposed to Daniel. They're pagans. Pagans that had no business knowing about the coming of the king of the Jews. And yet here they are. And why does it say that they've come? Verse 2 Behold, wise men came from the east, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. They came to worship. 
This is a story of God drawing in the Gentiles to come worship King Jesus. And in Matthew's gospel, written to a Jewish audience, the first people that come to worship King Jesus are pagans from outside of Israel. Do you feel the shock factor that they would have had for his readers? I mean, it's absurd. God draws the Magi first? I mean, we're the ones God promised the Messiah would come for. We're the ones keeping his law. They don't deserve Messiah. And there lies the point. God is highlighting something for his Jewish audience. This king isn't coming just for them. He isn't just king of the Jews. He's king of the whole world. He always has been. This has been his heart from the start for the nations. And that means people that they would have counted unclean, unworthy, and undeserving of God's kingdom. This is a major theme throughout Matthew. Like in Matthew 9.12 when Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Dane Ortland says, this is the great surprise of Matthew. The strange key to participation in the joys of God's kingdom is not qualifying ourselves for it, but frankly acknowledging our disqualification for it. And that very key will end up becoming a roadblock that kept much of Israel from worshiping Jesus as king. Unable to acknowledge their own disqualification of Messiah. Instead behaving like they were owed Messiah. The first thing I want us to learn from these wise men and their seeking to worship King Jesus is that we need to acknowledge we don't deserve him. It starts with the confession of our disqualification. I mean, even though we don't, we don't see them confess that themselves in the text, it's in the subtext. The readers would recognize the first people that God called to come seek Jesus are those that they know don't deserve it. And the same is true for you and I. Even for mature Christians, that posture of feeling owed something from God just kind of seeps in, doesn't it? And we need God's spirit, we need his word to realign our posture for worship. And remember, I don't deserve any of this. Which is incredible, incredible news for us because that's exactly who God says he's inviting into the kingdom. So how did God draw these pagan Gentiles in? Well, the reason they give in verse 2 is that they saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. I love this. Look, we don't know for sure what the star was. There's lots of theories out there. It could have been a supernova. could have been something natural like that, or a comet, or uh, the conjoining of Jupiter and Saturn. It could have been that they were just reading the constellations a certain way. Or it could have been something supernatural, just a light that God supernaturally had appear, or an angel that was going before them. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because this is a story of God drawing in the Gentiles to worship him. 
God used something that spoke to these men. Astronomy. By all accounts, this is not something encouraged in Judaism. And yet God was seeking after these men. And so he spoke into their stories in a language that they understood. It wasn't just that the star appeared. They were, they were waiting for it. They knew it was connected with the king of the Jews. They obviously had some understanding of the prophecies about the promised king, most likely from their interactions with the Jews in Babylon. And for this group of magi, they believed it. They took God's word to heart. We don't know all of what they understood about the scriptures, but whatever understanding they had, they took it to heart and they acted on it. They were listening, watching, waiting for God to speak. They listened to his word and the prophecies and they watched for him to speak as they waited for the star. And when they heard God's word to them, they took it to heart and they responded. They believed it and they acted on it. James 1.22 says, Be doers of God's word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. It's not just hearing God's word, it's how we respond to God's word. And man, it could be so easy just to come in on a Sunday morning and hear with my ears. I'll confess, like, it's easy for me sometimes. You just kind of come in and go through the motions. But worship to Jesus isn't just hearing his word. It's in our response. The second thing the wise men teach us is that they were hearers and doers of God's word. And the wise men responded by coming. Coming, it says back in verse 1, to Jerusalem from the east. Doesn't tell us exactly where that is, but most commentators would say it's the area of Babylon. And from Babylon, by the major trade route, that would have been about a 1,300-kilometer journey. A 40-day walk one way. Now think about that. Think about what this says about their seeking to worship the promised king. They sacrificed their time, right? That's almost a three-month round-trip journey. They sacrificed convenience and comfort. They wouldn't have been staying at the G Hotel, right? Their safety, this was not a safe journey. They would have more than likely brought guards with them just to protect them. They sacrificed what people thought about them. You think about that? Like, hey, where are you guys going? Oh, we, we saw a star. And so we, we dropped everything in life to go worship the king of the Jews. Right? Like that, that's the kind of faith that labels you crazy. But that's a sacrifice, a cost that they're willing to pay in order to go meet and worship the king. I have to confess how often my worship of the king, my pursuit to see and know and understand King Jesus falls flat in comparison. I grumble that God doesn't seem near, that I'm not hearing his voice all while I can't be bothered to open my Bible. We have a million excuses. Billy busy, not Billy lives, busy lives, filled with all kinds of things that get in the way. When Jesus says, 
come seek me, we say, Jesus, come to me. I'm going to stay right here in the same patterns. And it's on you to come convince yourself to me. But the wise men indeed show us wisdom here. They lay the worries of life aside and they go and seek the king. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Third point to glean from these wise men, they sought the king with all their heart. They diligently sought out the king in order to worship him. They came all the way to Jerusalem and they inquired. They sought after knowledge they lacked, going to the king in Jerusalem himself to ask about the king of the Jews. And when they did, verse 3, Herod the king heard this and he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod is a sociopath, but he rightly understands what this prophecy means. There's a promised ruler coming. A promised king coming. And for Herod... That means a threat. He hears the wise men asking about a king of the Jews, and so he seeks out the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he asks them where this king is supposed to be born because he wants to snuff him out. But what Herod meant for evil, God meant for good because Herod then points the wise men in the direction of Bethlehem. I want us to pause and think about something that happened here because it's, it's easily missed. The wise men first went to Jerusalem, but the text doesn't say that the star led them exactly there. They went to Jerusalem because that's naturally where a king should be. They go to the palace where Herod is because that's where a king should be. They innocently ask Herod where the king of the Jews is because they are expecting to find the promised king already acknowledged by Israel. But he wasn't. It means that nobody has validated this king yet. The culture isn't worshiping him as a king. The wise men's first expectations for what this long-awaited king is supposed to be turns out not to be true. And how often it is that that means the end for somebody's inquiring of Jesus. In fact, this is what's going to keep much of Israel from believing in Jesus when he begins his ministry. Israel was expecting a certain kind of king. A warrior king that would free them from the tyranny of Rome. And when King Jesus shows up and didn't match those expectations... Instead of laying aside those expectations and receiving Jesus as he was, many chose to cling to their version of Messiah King. 
this isn't the king we expected. He's not the king we wanted. And so they went home, stopped following him. And how often, this is true of our own hearts, we have expectations for who we think Jesus should be, what he should do for us, what he should give us, how he should engage with the world. And when he upsets those expectations, that can elicit some frustration in us. Maybe even a refusal to accept him as he is. I mean, I know I was convicted of this this week as I was meditating on this and just realized that, you know, sometimes I kind of want King Jesus to look more like Herod. Not the sociopath part, but sometimes I want God to just get stuff done. Just build your church in Ornmore, God. Come on, just do it. But thank God my version of God is wrong. Do you know how Jesus begins his rule as king in Matthew? His first words in ministry are, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then it describes his kingdom breaking in. Chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. His kingdom? His kingdom is a kingdom of mercy. Patiently. Dwelling with the broken, the downcast, the sick, and healing them. Ultimately healing them from their greatest disease, sin. While Herod is willing to kill his own family in order to establish his rule, our king, King Jesus, he established his rule by sacrificing himself for strangers and enemies so that we might become his family. He's not the king they expected, but the wise men, verse 9, they went on their way. Bethlehem is a, a backwater village. I got to go there when I did my study abroad in Israel, and outside of the fact that Jesus was born there, it was nothing to write home about. This is not where a proper king would be growing up, but that doesn't dissuade them. He didn't match their first expectations, but, but they didn't go back home. They went on their way. They continued to search. We don't get to define this king. He is who he is. Point number four, they surrender their false expectations of Jesus. Verse nine, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. In this story of God drawing these Gentiles to come worship the king, we're getting at the heart of it all now. 
The Magi have gone on an extraordinary limb to make this massive journey, trusting that this star is God's confirmation of the promised king. But he's not where they, they expect. Nobody else seems to be expecting him by this star. They get directed towards Bethlehem by Herod because of the prophecies that the priests and scribes mention. But did you notice that the priests and scribes aren't going with him? They're going alone. They weren't convinced that this was God's sign. I mean, what if we're wrong? Maybe, maybe it wasn't God. Maybe we misinterpreted the stars. But then, as they continue on their way, the star rose again, went before them and rested over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Again, Matthew is intentional with his words. He could have said, when the star rose, they rejoiced, full stop. That would have been true, right? Matthew's probably getting his account from, of the story from Mary with all that the wise men shared with her about their journey. And so from what she shared with Matthew, apparently it wasn't enough just to say that they rejoiced. Nor was it enough to say, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly. Nor was it enough to say they rejoiced exceedingly with joy. But it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Look, look, there it is. It's there again. It's real. We weren't mistaken. It's real. And there it is hovering over that village. God showed us the way the king is here. And they rejoiced exceedingly with joy. Please don't miss what, this is, what God is saying. Our kind of worship to God should look like. Again, this book was written primarily for a Jewish audience. They were plenty familiar with religious worship as duty, as obligation, in Matthew 15, when Jesus is talking to the uber-religious Pharisees, he says, Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That should be a sobering verse for us to hear. I know it is for me. Because it describes a people who honor God with their lips. They sing about him. They teach about him. They preach about him. They pray to him. All in a way that can be completely in vain. Worthless. Why? Because their hearts are far from him. Jesus goes on to say that it's, it's not what goes into the body that makes you unclean, but what flows out of the heart. Because true worship comes from the heart. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he buried it again. And then in his joy went and sold all that he had so that he could buy the field and have the treasure. God commands that Jesus be our ultimate treasure. 
God's heart for you is that you find your all-satisfying joy and happiness in him. The worship we see highlighted from the wise men here, it's not, it's not duty. It's not obligation. They see God's confirmation that the promised king is here, and they worship from their hearts with exceeding joy. They probably looked like fools to some of the guards and attendees that were with them. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel like, man, if I worship Jesus with all my heart right now, what what are these people sitting next to me going to think? So maybe you just dial it down a little bit. Do you ever watch the crowds in the World Cup, right? The game-winning goal gets scored, and the crowd loses it, right? There's this guy, he's just going to rip his shirt off, he's going to scream. Well, he can't rip off his shirt off in this World Cup. But normally, rip their shirt off, they're going to scream, they're going to sing, they're going to dance. And do you think they care at all what the person next to them is thinking? No. Their affections... That person's joy proves what his heart is treasuring. And he has zero reservations about it. All for a game that at the end means nothing. Sometimes our our church worship looks a little bit more like a fan at a golf tournament. Oh, it's pretty good, God. Yeah, it's good. I would just encourage you, the joy that we see here, this is God's heart for you. Man, I know growing up, my thought was, God is most satisfied the more miserable I am. And so I would go to Mass, and the more difficult it was, the more it was glorifying to God. But that's not God's heart. He is glorified the more joy we find in God. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we find our joy in reveals what our heart is treasuring. And here for these wise men, they find their exceeding joy in the king. Point number five, they worship Jesus from their hearts with joy. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped. Now, this is incredible. You can imagine these guys walking into this backwater village. We don't know if the star hovered right over the house or just in the village uh, at whole, but it doesn't matter because it's one of those villages where everybody knows everybody. And so they get pointed either way to Mary and Joseph's house that they're staying in. Their 40-day journey in search of God's promised king, prophesied about for centuries, lands them at a doorstep of a first century Jewish home. They knock, the door opens, and what do they find? There's no fanfare, there's no throne room, there's no servants in attendance waiting for them, just a teenage girl named Mary holding a baby boy. And they fall down and worship him. They worship. They came expecting to find a king recognized by Israel, and instead they find a baby that no one knows about. 
They didn't demand proof. It just says they saw the child and there was something in them that they, that they saw and they worship him. We don't know all that the wise men know about the nature of Jesus, but worship, worship is reserved for the divine. The Jewish readers of this book certainly wouldn't have missed it. The first seekers of this king bow down in worship of this king because that's what this king deserves. Because he is the king of kings. He's God. He's Lord of all. They are submitting themselves to, swearing allegiance to, giving worship to this baby king of kings. Even in the small way in in verse 12, which says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Like there's, there's no allegiance to Herod. Their allegiance is to the God of this king, even though he's not what they expected. And I wonder if sometimes, when God isn't showing up the way we want him to, or he's calling us to do something that we don't want him to, we can be a little slow to bow our knee to King Jesus, choosing instead to be our own little kings. We accept him as savior, but we're resistant to accept him as king, as Lord, as the one that we give our authority to, the one that says, go this way or go that way, the one that we bow our knee to when it comes to our relationships, our jobs, our money, our family, where we live, how we spend our time. But make no mistake, right worship to God requires submission to Jesus as the King of Kings. Point number six, the wise men submit to the King and worship as the King of Kings. And submitting in worship to this King, man, it's unlike submitting to any other authority. You can rest knowing that he is a good king, always working for your good. You can rest knowing that he is the king with all authority, meaning your enemies are no real threat. You can rest knowing that he is always a truthful king that always fulfills his promises. Finally, second half of verse 11 Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, if anyone here is uh, gifting me with a Christmas gift of one of these three, I'll go ahead and take the gold. Thank you very much. All three of these, though, would have been very valuable at this time. Very precious gifts. The wise men came prepared with personal treasures for the king. And when they offer the small child the gifts, they are again validating him as the king that they came for. But here's what these gifts aren't. They aren't payment. The kingdom of Jesus isn't a kingdom that we buy our way into. There is nothing that we can do or give or earn to get into this kingdom. Nor is it forced obligation. Nor is it that 
that Irish way of giving someone something just so that they owe you something? Like there's no exchange happening here. So what is this? Well, surprise, surprise, this is worship. In the Old Testament, this is what tithing is. It was giving a tenth of the best of your crops, your best cattle. God didn't need it. He has no needs that we could meet. That was worship to God as the giver of all good gifts. When you go before God and say, okay, I want to give this percentage of my income to the church to advance your kingdom, God. It's worship to Jesus. This is what using your gifts in church are. When you serve, when you do set up or sing or help with Sunday school or serve in hospitality, it is worship to Jesus. When you sacrifice your time and energy to plan for outreach, it's worship to Jesus. You're saying, God, all that I have is yours. Your money, time, energy, giftings. And then you give the best you have to Jesus. Final point. We worship King Jesus by offering the best we have to King Jesus. And here's the cool part. God actually uses our gifts. He doesn't need to, but he loves to. Even the stuff that you think is small, even when your gifting seems insignificant to maybe somebody else's, God's desire and plan is to use them for his kingdom's advance. As God's sovereignty would have it, the gifts of these wise men were probably used to finance Jesus' escape to Egypt from Herod that we're going to see, that you, uh, you would see in the next text, which the wise men probably knew nothing about. Sometimes we don't know the significance of how God uses our gifts. But be encouraged. Offer your gifts to Jesus with all your heart. Because it's his heart, it's his desire, and it's his plan to actually use them for the kingdom. All right. Preaching a sermon with seven points is it's sort of a fool's errand because nobody remembers seven points. But my hope is that man, one of those stuck out for you. Look, life is, life is crazy, especially in the Christmas season. But let's not forget that God calls us to seek after Jesus in order to worship Jesus. How do the wise men show us how we do that? by humbly acknowledging our disqualification, by being hearers and doers of his word. We seek him with our whole heart. We surrender our false expectations. We worship Jesus as our ultimate treasure with joy. We submit to that king in worship, and we offer the best we have in worship. And look, if that's, if that's overwhelming, remember, this is a story about God drawing in worshipers to King Jesus. God is the one that is drawing you. God is not a cold and distant God just waiting for you to come to him. In fact, he knows, as the Bible says, that there are none who rightly seek after God. And so God sought us instead. Jesus is the ultimate seeker 
and Christmas declares it. So wanting to pursue you, he took on human flesh as a baby, lived the life that you couldn't, died the death that you should have, sent his own spirit to speak to you and draw you in to his family. Jesus is the one pursuing you. At the end of the day, here's the simple encouragement for the Christmas season. Seek Jesus, knowing that he's the one seeking you. Come to Jesus, knowing that he's the one that came and has done all the rest. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have indeed come. That Messiah, King, as promised, came. And he came for us. And we thank you for the example of the wise men, of what it looks like to seek you, to search after you, in order to worship you. And I pray, God, that you would help us. We confess that we don't, we don't do it as you call us to, but we want to. So we ask, God, fill us with your spirit. Lead us down the path that leads to you. Help us to worship you with our whole hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.